This is an ABC podcast. All right, my favourite book, The Bird Guide. <laughs> Listen to these absurdly named creatures. Frigate birds. Noddies. The Imperial Shag. I mean, what, Darth Vader on Tinder? It does lead me to ask some questions sometimes when I flip through the bird guide, like what is with all the tits and boobies? And like, hooters? I'm Ann Jones and this is What the Duck, the weekly program for ABC Science, where we're going to try to get to the bottom of the weirdest mysteries of the natural world and sometimes the ones that have been staring me in the face for years. Like, why do birds have such silly names? I have a list of bizarre bird names. I mean, I could have had hundreds of them. Stephen Moss has written a bazillion books on natural history, including one that investigates the origins of bird names. It's called Mrs Moreau's Warbler. I put some in the end of the book. I start with the positive ones, you know, gorgeous bushrite, resplendent quetzal, marvellous spatule tail. And then we've got invisible rail, the dull ones, you know, snoring rail, dull coloured grass quit, <laughs> banana quit and bearded mountaineer to crinkle collared manucode, fasciated tiger heron, teardrop white eye, vermiculated screech owl, and he was zitting cysticola. These dazzling and sometimes hyperbolic names bring one man to mind. In the end, I'm a bird watcher as well as a bird researcher, and I've made a quest to try and see all of the superlative names. So there's lots of birds called beautiful. So if you've seen a, a beautiful that occurs in Australia, which is a little finch, fire tail, the other beautifuls are nice, but you've just seen the word. <laughs> Andrew has spent several decades now chasing down every superlative word in a bird name by seeing the bird. So he's bird watching, but he's also word batching. Some of them are very difficult to get. I think I'm three short. Wait, so is this just in Australia or around the world? Around the world. Oh my God. So you must have, well, how many are on your list so far? Well, looking at superlatives, it's a matter of defining what a superlative is. So <laughs> I, I don't consider great a superlative because that could just be a reference to size. Whereas lovely is clearly a superlative. <laughs> so there's about 40 names which I accept and I've seen 37 of them. So. What was the hardest superlative? So it's a dull brown bird with a haughty bearing, <laughs> which, is called, which is called the noble snipe. And I was terribly pleased to see that one. The noble snipe sounds like a malfunctioning pedestrian crossing and it's found in the Andes, in swampy areas and it's nocturnal. Because it seems so unlikely getting out of the back of a foil drive and wandering around in the dark trying to see a dark brown bird. <laughs> so you said that you've been at it for several decades on the um, superlative words. How much money do you reckon you've spent on this over time? Quite a lot. <laughs> but I'm very, <laughs> very frugal in other aspects of my life. <laughs> That's the sound of a celestial monarch, by the way, which Andrew begrudgingly says is almost a double superlative, even though he's a staunch Republican. 
and it's one that's still on his list. Most birds have at least two names, and sometimes many, many more. Bird species have their scientific name. This should bind the bird species to its place in the tree of life. But just because they're used in serious scientific discourse doesn't mean that these names are not just sometimes silly. Some of the names are completely meaningless, in fact, when you look into them. Jeannie Gray is an author of the book Australian Bird Names, which brought together two of her passions, birds and the history of language. I mean, if you think of the laughing kookaburra, for example, it has the name Dasello, and that's just an anagram of the name for the common kingfisher, which is Alcedo. Lols, those early science blokes and their big jokes. That didn't necessarily go over all that well in the hallowed halls of serious scientific nomenclature, but once you've named a bird and it's appeared in print, that's it. That's its name. <laughs> oh, there is the large-tailed nightjar. Who has a brilliant call, like someone flicking a tiny little metal ruler against a desk. And it looks like, I don't know, like a bit of dark brown mottled fluff that's rolled out from under the bed and it has two extremely large, dark eyes that stare into your soul. The scientific name doesn't give any of this information at all. His name is Caprimulgus macrurus. Now, macrurus just means large-tailed, which it turns out he's actually not. But um, <laughs> the genus name, Caprimulgus, it means basically goat milker. And this is from a, one of these ancient European folk beliefs. The bird comes out at night and it sucks all the milk out of your goats. And not only that, but it actually somehow blinds them in the process. So you've got all these blind goats wandering around with no milk. What the duck? A bloody vampiric goat-milking bird. But the truth is that most of us don't really go anywhere near the Latin names. We mostly use common names. Sometimes these are called folk names. And some of them actually have ancient origins. Stephen Moss. So many of our common bird names in English are onomatopoeic, even ones we don't think it. But all the crows' names, crow, rook, raven, these are onomatopoeic names. They're very ancient. They are a mimicry of the bird's call. And I like to think that a hunter is walking home and they look up and a raven's above their head and it gives that incredible deep, I can't even do it, and they imitate it. You know, rough, 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 and rough, and rough, you know, and you could see why, where these words came from. Crow, crow, crow. An awful lot of bird names are on the Matapeer. And in Stephen Moss's book, Mrs. Moreau's Warbler, he goes through a sort of history of bird naming, and here's the short, short version. Birds named for a physical feature like their colour, blue, yellow, speckled, spotted. Then birds named for a habit like nutcracker or tree creeper or lily trotter, where they might live in reeds or swamps. And of course, later on, birds are named after people, rich people, famous people, and people involved in the science around the bird most often. We're going to have to come back to this category. With each of these types of birds, you get a bit of human history because a hunter being able to identify what's good to eat, I mean, that's economic history. Naming a bird after someone who might give you money, that's a capitalism of sorts. 
A bird that's apparently regal, well, that's monarchy. And in the case of Australia, that's colonialism. English bird names have travelled around the world. And the very fact that the first European settlers in Australia clearly looked at birds and just went robin, wren, magpie, you know, the, the idea that these birds were in some way vaguely related to European birds. They're not. But this is why our magpies are called magpies, because superficially they're black and white birds, sort of like the ones from the old country. Anything that was small or brown and hopped into the bushes, that was called a wren. They're not wrens. Genetically, the birds are mostly very different from the birds of the Northern Hemisphere, often not even in the same family. Of course, as far as common names go for Australian birds, not all of them were named after birds from the North. Some of them had names that arose spontaneously after colonisation. Like catbirds, for obvious reasons. Ian Fraser is a co-author of Australian Bird Names, Origins and Meanings, and he's also a mad keen birder. When the first European settlers moved west from Sydney and started farming in the plains out around where Parramatta now is, which was then known as Rose Hill, they came across a parrot and they called it a Rose Hill parrot. And that soon became elided Rose Hillers and then Rosellas with an E or Rosellas. One of the other interesting things about that is that it only referred to eastern rosellas. They were just called rosellas. Uh, crimson rosellas were crimson parrots or blue mountain lorries or something. And it was, again, not in the 1920s that um, we just pulled all the members of that genus in and started calling them all rosellas. And what Ian is referring to there when he says about the 1920s is a really important meeting of a subsection of the then Royal Australasian Ornithologist Union. They printed a list that basically said, here are the official names of Australian birds. Lots of common names that we use today were solidified in that report, for better or worse. And then there was another report in 1978 called Recommended English Names for Australian Birds. But of course, the birds had names well before those reports, well before 1788. And some of those names are actually blended into the common names that we still use. Ian Fraser. Kookaburra, surely one of the most familiar of Australian birds. And I'm sure we can all hear the sound of a kookaburra. And in fact, that name pops up in different languages, as you might expect, right across eastern and southern Australia. It was that same list from the 1920s that helped cement kookaburra into our national lingo. Though other words like galah, karawong, gangang, there's not much info around on where these words exactly were appropriated from. By the way, other common names for the kooker are the great brown kingfisher, the laughing jackass, plus the alarm clock bird, the breakfast bird, the shepherd's clock, the whoop whoop pigeon and the ha-ha duck. And remember Andrew, the one who's been on that decades-long quest to see one of each superlative, the word, which appears in a bird name? Well, he's got another side project. And I started to enter a, a side thing as a, a joke to look at all the insulting names. It depends whether you're looking for something that makes the bird sound extremely obnoxious. Like the hang-nest toady tyrant. Or the screaming piha. Or, uh, very frightening. Like the satanic nightjar. Or just so 
unbelievably inconspicuous and dull. The predicted Antren. I sometimes wonder about the depressive state of the ornithologist in question, you know. You think, oh, they weren't feeling very charitable, were they? (laughs) And speaking of names that are slightly questionable, what is the story behind this bird, which is apparently called a tit? Well, tit is a very simple word that means little, and the original name of the tit family was titmouse. They were called titmouse or titmice, plural. But it's possible also on a metopoeic because they often, although they've got song, they've also got a lot of chattering calls and some of them sound like zit. Mouse sounds like, oh, it's a little animal. But again, all mouse means is little. So really you're, you're saying a tiny little thing when you say titmouse. It's one of these names that have been used before in ornithology was the science. So. And of course, it has become a, a sort of vulgar term for breasts. And it's unfortunate <laughs> that the best-known species is called the great tit. So having great tits in your backyard can seem superficially smutty. The Americans won't have a bar of it. They call their tits chickadees. And tit can sometimes be used as a synonym for idiot too. Stop being a tit. Which is funny, Right. Because there's another bird, which is also another word for breasts, which also has stupid origins. The boobies or gannets it came from, a, I think it was a Portuguese word originally, meaning a foolish fellow. And it was a, they were easy to kill at the breeding grounds. And sailors came ashore, clubbed them to death, took them and the eggs away. And because they didn't fly away, they were called foolish. Apparently, the root of booby is bobo like the clown. Booby, tit, foolish, breasts. I'm not saying there's a misogynist link, but I'm not not saying that there's a misogynist link either. Because you would be foolish if you thought that there wasn't a certain amount of misogyny inherent in the world of ornithology, and even in bird names. I use the example of uh, uh, parrots at a party. Stephen Downs is the bloke behind the Parrot of the Day social media accounts. If you're on Twitter and into birds, you would have seen him around. And uh, someone sidles up to a nice-looking female parrot and says, Hi, what kind of parrot are you? And she says, I'm a red rump parrot. He checks out her rump and says, "Mm, not not from here, you're not. And, of course, only the male has a red rump. Um, And and all these other names of of birds that, that are based solely on a characteristic of the male that the female doesn't have. And you think, well, okay, how did we get here? <laughs> you mean, how did we get invited to this house party only populated by birds that are named after male bird characteristics? Oh, look, there's the red-backed fairy wren. G'day. Tails looking cock tonight, mate. <laughs> See what I did there? Oh, the red-tailed black cocky. Take it easy on the nuts, mate. The red-cheeked parrot, scientific name like a soccer chant. Jeff Royus, Jeff Royai, Jeff Royai. Easy on the drinks, Jeff. 
Oh, yep. And then out the back of the barbecue, here are all the birds that are named after males. Male humans, I'm talking about. Paul's babbler. G'day. Saunders turn. Burke's parrot. Wilson's storm petrel. Swinhoes. And Nordman's. Maclay's. McGillivarays, Gilberts, Cooks, Carnabys, Bordens, Alberts, Abbots. Ah, uh, what have you lot directly come from the Australia Club or something? And of course, it's not just women that have been largely left out. The birds of what we now call Australia had names for thousands of years before any white person turned up on a boat. My name is Nola Turner Jensen. I'm a Wiradjuri woman from Western New South Wales. And in my people's language, it's Nadu Gambananindiga. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> what is it like when you hear European language names used for birds? It's like somebody came along and just covered up and silenced the real names and the real stories of the place. It hurts us physically. Certainly, spiritually, absolutely. It's insulting, really, because it, it is not their name. It's not been their name for tens of thousands of years. We don't just name things for the sake of naming things, like, oh, there's a blue bird or a green bird. We name them for how they fit in relationship to our world and to their world. We have what's called a duray, which is our inherited piece of land from our mother. And the duray means having. So when you think of my grandmother's 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 duray, which is near Lake Angelico, that's Yuruban duray. That's the place that's having the welcome swallow. Our employment was to care for the welcome swallow. And we had a song that the women used to sing to bring the welcome swallow down to the lake. When you're born and you're in, on your mother's duray, Yuruban duray, that would have been my name. So, you know, and it, it's the, the hurt. People say, you know, why can't we get on with things and just live like other Australians and that. Imagine having your mother's country, which is your name, which holds your ancestors you're meant to care for and all your stories, and you can drive past that duray you can point to it from the car, but you can't go there. You know, you're banned from there. It's a really, it's a very soul-destroying thing to have that taken from you. So if I'm understanding what Nola told me correctly, it isn't just the initial colonisation and violence that scars, that by taking away the name of a bird, that is interwoven with your family and your life, so that when you think of Yuruban and then hear it called the welcome swallow, it's like repeating the dispossession over and over again. Now, one more example of why bird names are history hand grenades that explode their context all over the unsuspecting. There is one bird name on the beaks of birdwatchers right now. Yeah, it sounds like a pterodactyl, but it's actually the pink cockatoo. And you might know it as the Major Mitchell's cockatoo. Uh, Swidjigala. Nola Turner. Swidjigala is uh, its name. And um, 
he was an important bird. He's still an important bird, but he's not Major Mitchell to us, of course. He's Ujigala. When I saw them in the wild in the Mallee of Victoria, I thought, well, why is this named after or in honour of Major Mitchell? Stephen Downs is that man behind the Parrot of the Day social media accounts. His actual profession is in branding and marketing, so that sort of puts him in a unique position to comment on bird brands, I mean bird names. I guess he must have brought them to the attention of Western ornithology. Nope, that wasn't it. The bird was already known to Western science before Mitchell ever set out on his expeditions. And Mitchell wrote about it and painted it and apparently he fell in love with it. But for decades, the most common name was Pink Cockatoo. Major Mitchell Cocky weirdly caught on much more recently. And as with many common names, it can be a bit hard to pinpoint exactly why or when. Anyway, who was this bloke? He was ex-army, um, Surveyor General of New South Wales um, from 1828 through to 1855. He explored widely in the inland. No doubt he went to places, the Darling River and northwest Victoria, etc., where he would have seen these birds. We now know that there was a darker side to Mitchell, who ordered his men to fire repeatedly on a group of local Aboriginal people as they were already fleeing from gunfire. Mitchell's party shot and killed at least seven Indigenous people. But I think we can regard that as an underestimate. A lot of them were shot in the water as they swam in 1836. That's now officially recognised as a site of a massacre, the Mount Dispersion Massacre. I look at early parish maps all the time to see things like Murder Island, Poison Hill, you know, all this sort of thing, Silent Creek, I think that's one of the scariest ones I've ever read. All these really early names that were just so violent. It was just such a violent time. I, th I think by any modern day sensibilities and ethics, this is not a person who we would wish to honour or glorify in that way. And, you know, and the poor bird certainly doesn't deserve it, I don't think. To name him after such a person that has creates fear and um, anger is uh, really distressing. It shouldn't be that way. Although it can be slightly bureaucratic, Names can be changed. Remember how there was that report back in the 1920s from the then Ornithologist Union? Well, that organisation is now BirdLife Australia. And you guessed it, they've got a naming committee. BirdLife Australia is thinking really carefully about all of these issues at the moment. And the Major Mitchell's cockatoo is actually a species that is under consideration by the Australian Bird Names Committee. Dr Aisha Tullock is a voluntary member of BirdLife Australia's Research and Conservation Committee. And that committee oversees a number of different working groups. One of them is the Bird Naming Committee. When we think about it, the naming conventions that we are using today are a historical artefact of predominantly white colonisation of continents that by and large already had people living in them and already had names for the creatures. You know, is this the kind of person that we want a, one of our cockatoos named after? Well, I think the names we give things are, are very important. The names we use for things are even more important. 
talking about the brand concept, a brand is really a, a network of associations in the mind of the perceiver, and the name has the power to trigger a whole bunch of associations, some of which are tangible, a lot of which are intangible. The names that we use for the things around us, especially living things, tell us more about ourselves than they do about, in this case, the bird. The names we choose to call birds aren't just about the sounds that come out of your mouth. They're about the future connections to nature and whether people will feel welcome or able to share their passion for the wild with each other without feeling fear. What the Duck is a production of ABC Science for ABC RN, and I'm Anne Jones. The producer is Patria Ladgrove, and script editing by Joel Werner. This show is mostly produced on the land of the Wadawurrung and the Kaurna people, with guests and experts from all over the world. Oh, and if you've got a What the Duck moment that you need explored, drop us a line, whattheduck at abc.net.au. We want to hear your mysteries. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.